Gresham College presents Does the Citizen Have the Right to Protest on the High Seas? by Professor Sir Geoffrey Nice. Good evening. Uh, last month I spoke about how to approach the issue of establishing whether war crimes were committed in the Israel-Gaza conflict, but not with whether they had been or whether they had not been. This month I'm going to speak about an incident involving the motor vessel, the Mavi Mamara, an event to be seen within that overall conflict when, in 2010, a flotilla of um, vessels, there's the Mavi Mamara, big ship, or big vessel, certainly, um, when a flotilla, including that vessel as the lead vessel, with humanitarian aid, sought to break the blockade on Gaza imposed by Israel. The vessel was boarded by members of the Israeli Defense Force some 73 nautical miles from the Gaza shore, and nine passengers on the Mavi Mamara were shot dead by the Israeli Defense Force. One other was in a coma for several years and died last year. Hundreds of passengers were handcuffed, and so they and reports about them say were gravely abused. All were taken to the port of Ashdod under arrest, to show you where that is in case it's up there, you can see the Gaza Strip, and there's Ashdod further up there. They were all taken to the port of Ashdod under arrest, but later released without any kind of charge. I represent the states of Comoros, the flag state of the Mavi Mamara, the ship's owners, the bereaved and passengers at the International Criminal Court and elsewhere in various actions. Just as last month I offered no conclusion about whether war crimes had been committed by either side on the grounds of having insufficient access to material and witnesses, I won't do so on this occasion, but for similar and additional reasons arising from the representation that I have of involved parties. This is the last lecture I will give at Gresham focused on the role of law in international armed or internal armed conflicts. And looking back, it's an appropriate one with which to end. In all lectures, I may have revealed a concern, sometimes scepticism, about the application of law to war. And in the three years that some of us have journeyed together from the beginnings of law about war in the 19th century to their hopes, dashed as they were before the world, First World War, that arbitration could take the place of war, We've gone through the one-sided trials prosecuted by international victors against leaders of a losing side that merited the description of victor's justice. We've gone via the creation of the, or the articulation of the crime of genocide, codified in part in the way it was to save America from the consequences of a more broadly defined crime against humanity, which would have brought them to difficulties maybe with lynchings and with what was done to Native Americans. And we've also then gone through the ad hoc tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda, United Nations bodies prosecuting, and all that seemed to be, or tribunals that seemed to be occasionally vulnerable to partiality and political pressure. We looked at the mixed tribunals of Cambodia, Sierra Leone, where similarly external pressures seemed to apply. And um, then finally, or not finally, but in the course of that, we went to the International Court of Justice, where one state 
can pursue another for the breaches of the, Geneva, of the Genocide Convention. And indeed, where allegations of uh, genocide in respect of Srebrenica were so unsatisfactorily dealt with by the three new states, as they then were of Serbia, Bosnia, and Croatia. And in all these courts, individuals were charged often as members of paramilitary groups as well as of state forces. And then finally, I considered informal tribunals that dealt on the basis of evidence with World War II crimes overlooked for political reasons, the Comfort Women Tribunal, interstate war, the Russell Tribunal for Vietnam, or internal humanitarian atrocities, the Iran massacres of 1980s, the Iran Tribunal dealing with those. In all those cases, examples of the international community, it would appear, never daring to institute proper judicial proceedings concerning such powerful state actors. In the course of looking at these various conflicts and the way law has sought in part to deal with them, many categories of the world's citizens' concerns about the tragedies of which they hear daily and about the courts that try to deal with them have been explored, as I say, sometimes sceptically, but I hope always with the conclusion that there was a role for law and that there were reasons to press on with what could so easily be seen as experimental, judicial and quasi-judicial processes. So in some state forces, paramilitaries, individuals have been and are being examined for criminality, sometimes done well, sometimes less well by these various courts and tribunals. What is there left to consider? The subject matter of this lecture. Because we live in a world where uninvolved citizens are ever better informed of events by television, radio and social media. They form opinions and often enough recognise that their concerns and interests are not being reflected in what nations and international bodies do in their name. But experience shows, and this is one underlying reality of this lecture, that expressing opinions is of limited effect. Public demonstrations, letters to the editor and even op-eds rarely achieve much. Yet the, real, the world citizen has a right to his or her opinion and in a dangerous world may have the right to express it and to seek to have it affect the way the world turns. Merely to say, however, even out loud, what your opinion is may achieve little or nothing. So, for example, in the Israel-Gaza conflict, there have been opinions by several international or otherwise apparently objective bodies adverse to the legality of some or many aspects of all sides of the conflict. Richard Goldstone's report, Mary Davis's report, the informal Russell Tribunal's opinions on the conflict, and so on. But these opinions have counted, apparently, for very little and achieved nothing or almost nothing, perhaps nothing at all. Even the highly critical words of the UN Secretary General, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights about aspects of the Operation Protective Edge that happened in the summer of 2014 have had no apparent effect. Yet the formal institutions, the formal inter international institutions, including the United Nations itself, that are constructed to deal with these issues, are inactive and silent. What can 
What should the bystander do? Nothing. Something. Sometimes they want to and try, as the hundreds of passengers, I think it was, let's go back and just remind ourselves of the size of the vessel. I think it was about 600 passengers on this vessel. Um, and for the most part, there's really no dispute but that they wanted to achieve something towards the business of correcting what they saw to be a substantial wrong. And so it was that they were on the high seas, 73 miles off the coast of Gaza, when the vessel was boarded by uh, the Israeli Defence Force. What was their standing? What is the standing of somebody who protests, takes part in direct action of some kind on the high seas? Well, one of the four reasonably contemporaneous reports into the flotilla incident, the United Nations Human Rights Commission report, chaired by uh, Hudson Phillips, QC, who's a retired judge of the International Criminal Court, and in an inquiry that was not recognised by Israel, I regret to say. He dealt with um, this particular issue a little bit in his conclusion, or the conclusion of he and his two colleagues. And he said this, the mission has given thought to the position of humanitarian organisations who wish to intervene in situations of long-standing humanitarian crisis where the international community is unwilling for whatever reason, to take positive action. Too often they are accused as being meddlesome and at worst as terrorists or enemy actions. He then distinguishes um, between humanitarian and political things and says this, this point is made because of the evidence that while some of the passengers were solely interested in delivering supplies to the people in Gaza, for others the main person was raising awareness of the blockade with a view to its removal as the only way to solve the crisis. An examination should be made to clearly define humanitarianism as distinct from humanitarian action so that there can be an agreed form of intervention and jurisdiction when humanitarian crises occur. And I'll return to that issue that Hudson Phillips and his colleagues adverted to right at the end. Because this, although an instructive and an insightful and constructive proposition, may not get quite to the issue of those who were demonstrating, if that's what we can describe them as doing, on the high seas, on board the vessel, the Mavi Mamara, when it was boarded in the middle of the night and on all the evidence stationary, uh, 73 miles off the coast. It should be noted, I think, that efforts by citizens to affect the course of world affairs by peaceful means, other than the ballot box of their own, ballot box of their own nation, will attract many categories of individuals. There are those whose anguish for the suffering they seek to remedy is high. There are those who desire to engage in politics other than through being elected or working through 
to high office in their own country. There are those who simply enjoy meddling in the affairs of others. And then there are fellow travellers of those whose interests are being supported in some way, um, fellow travellers with the suffering group who may be hiding political affiliation, who may be subversive, or in these modern dangerous days, may be worse than that. The Israel-imposed blockade on Gaza was announced in 2007, and it placed restrictions on the passage of goods, the supply of oil and electricity, and the movement of persons to and from Gaza. And this was in response, it was said, to a number of military security concerns regarding Hamas, the newly elected leadership in the region. The effect of the sanctions through the tightened import of goods um, to only primary food, fodder and hygiene items prevented entry of items beyond basic humanitarian products such as clothing and construction materials. And coupled with the stifling of the exports industry, the restrictions caused Gaza's economy to become dramatically depressed and led to the continued impoverishment of its population. Despite a pledge to loosen these sanctions, little was actually done, and even this year, more than half of the population, this year, 2015, suffer from what's called food insecurity, and the sources of these observations of mine are in the printed paper. 70% continue to rely on humanitarian aid, and exports of marketable goods remain at, as a percentage of what the level of exports was in 2007... 6%. That is the effect on their trade. The Israeli government remains firm in its justification of the blockade. After the incident, the Turkle Commission was established, said to be an independent commission, initiated by the Israeli government to examine the flotilla incident. Um, It had as an observing non-voting member uh, Lord David Trimble. Uh, this commission reaffirmed Israel's compliance with obligations under international law and supported the proportionality of the blockade's military objective, even when considered in light of the suffering imposed on the civilian population. But the legality of the blockade remains hotly debated, and indeed the UN's own special rapporteur on the region, Richard Fulk, has denied has asserted for some time, well before this incident, that the blockade was wholly unlawful. Uh, A few other opponents of the blockade, or those who describe it as unlawful, uh, include the International Committee of the Red Cross, who described the blockade as collective punishment imposed in clear violation of Israel's obligations under international humanitarian law, and contrary to binding Geneva Conventions. There was a report prepared by way of joint enterprise by a number of NGOs and interested parties, including Christian Aid, Oxfam, Amnesty International, which concluded that imposition of the blockade was illegal under international law and a disproportionate response. Last, Last lecture, those of you who were here will remember the relevance sometimes of the term disproportionate, a disproportionate response to the threat posed by Hamas. Now, it's worth just bearing in mind that it would, I suppose, 
technically have been possible to test, perhaps at the ICJ, if you could get the matter there, whether this um, blockade was lawful. Plenty of people opposing it, and in particular, as we'll see, the people who were going to be on the flotilla being of the belief that it was unlawful. And it's certainly worth having in the back of your mind when we live in an age where the phrase rule of law is forever trawled before us. Is it satisfactory for a state to make no effort, in this case Israel, to make no effort to test on the legality of the state of affairs on the basis of which it did what it did? Well, it would have been difficult to get it before the ICJ, very difficult indeed. But nevertheless, keep that thought. Attempts by human rights organisation to break this allegedly unlawful blockade soon began by land and by sea to deliver humanitarian aid to the Gazans while exposing their condition to the world. Amongst those, the Free Gaza Movement organised a series of motor vessel uh, trips, I suppose one should call them, to Gaza and was successful on five separate occasions. Between August and December 2008, Boats carrying humanitarian supplies and a varied gathering of passenger delegates were able to reach the Gazan coast, although being tracked by the Israeli Defence Force. In early 2009, a vessel called Dignity, carrying three tonnes of medical supplies, but during the period of what was called Operation Cast Lead, which those of you familiar with the circumstance or were here the last time will know was the last substantial attack by Israel on Gaza or event involving Israel and Gaza before um, Operation Protective Edge. That was going on at the time of this vessel, uh, attempted breach of the blockade, and it was stopped in international waters 90 miles from the coast of Gaza, damaged by the vessels that stopped it. And a further effort thereafter resulted in the boat being challenged again and changing course, under threat of fire. So it was that in early 2010, a collaborative effort from the Free Gaza Movement and a number of other NGOs referred to as the Freedom Flotilla announced the intention to form another humanitarian convoy uh, made up of eight vessels and to break the siege. Now, an organisation extremely supportive of the Israel Defence Force is the Intelligence and Terrorism Information Centre, and you can find their website. Its analysis on certain topics might, for example, on, on the composition of passengers, might be unlikely to be undisputed as being over-favourable to the flotilla. That's the one thing it would not be. And it forecast, because it was keeping an eye on the development of this flotilla, it forecast about 900 passengers coming all together with a cargo of 5,000 tonnes of aid, including medicine, construction materials, and ready-made houses. And it made the point, even it, I, but certainly it made the point, that these passengers would include human rights activists, members of parliament, journalists. It also made the point that uh, possibly by a separate entry up a separate gangway, there were some 40 people who were, uh, as the term is, activists, 
who it said, both before and after uh, the event happened, were more likely to be willing to use violence in the course of any intervention by the Israeli Defense Force. Uh, the Mavi Mamara left Istanbul on May the 29th, 2010, for Antalya, where the passengers boarded, and possibly the other um, activist from an organization with the initials IHH boarded. The same organization, Intelligence and Terrorist Information, Terrorism Information Center, says that these activists were to run the ship. Um, and it said that they were going to be radical. Now, what's quite interesting as well to have in mind is that observation by the intelligence center was reporting as early as early May, so weeks before the departure, that people on board, for example, including a a member of the then Greek assembly, was saying, if there's an intervention, this is going to be contrary to law. Contrary to the laws of Europe, in fact, is what he said, but making it clear it was going to be contrary to law. So that when they did what they were going to do, they knew not only that there was a large number of people who held that the blockade was unlawful and therefore attempts to enforce it would be unlawful, but also that what they were going to do might well bring them to court. They not having, of course, been in a position to or having chosen to establish the legality of what they were doing by reason, by way of establishing that the blockade itself uh, was lawful. Now, nearly everything that can be disputed by one interest or another concerning what happened thereafter has been disputed. First of all, we've already dealt with whether the blockade was lawful. Second, what were the real motives of the passengers or the activists, certainly? What were the, acti were the activists active in violence when the Israeli Defence Force landed on the boat? Or were they reactive? Were they armed by bits of metal they'd cut off the railings there was barely any suggestion of any firearms being taken on. There was the slightest suggestion that one bullet might have been found, but no other suggestion of firearms. Um, also in dispute was whether the Israelis fired on the vessel before boarding or when descending the ropes from the helicopters uh, onto the top deck. There's dispute as to the level of abuse of the passengers, how long they were kept in handcuffs, with the handcuffs being tightened and passengers being abused, as has been said in many places. How they were treated on the way to Ashdod, and indeed how they were treated when interrogated there. The four inquiries, Turkey, Israel, the United Nations Human Rights Commission and the United Nations itself, all four inquiries are subject to attack from different quarters as being unreliable for different reasons. Nevertheless, there are some features that may be regarded as broadly non-controversial. Yes, there were over 700 passengers, 
from more than 40 different nationalities and hundreds of tons of humanitarian aid, including medical supplies and construction equipment. And I should say another issue that was disputed is whether the humanitarian aid was genuine. It's disputed. That's all I can say about it. And then at 4 o'clock on the 31st of May, in international waters, the Israeli military launched what was known by them as Operation Winds of Heaven 7 by surrounding the six vessels of the flotilla and boarding by force. Non-lethal weaponry, including sten, smoke guns, stun and smoke grenades, tear gas and paintballs were used on all the vessels, but the main passenger vessel, the Mavi Mamara, was targeted with live ammunition, fire and plastic bullets. So let's pause in the narrative. To whom, if any, should this vessel and its occupants be most likened? Let's allow for the possibility that there is some difference between so-called activists and the hundreds of people sitting with the journalists um, uh, in the lower decks. Let's assume that in, in favour of those who might be against um, the flotilla in some way. Who, to whom should they be most likened? Well, you've got fighters in the Spanish Civil War whose actions are often compared these days and contrasted with those jihadists who travel to join radical Islamic groups and become terrorists. Uh, there are also those, including from England, who join the Israeli Defence Force under the Mahal scheme. Well, there's probably not much similarity there because... Uh, at their strongest, the allegations against the passengers is that 40 of them were activists who were violent in their response to what happened when the IDF boarded by there the passengers' use of what are called cold weapons, metal rods and knives from the kitchen. And these are not allegations that have been conceded, nor have they been proved. None of the passengers, however, was in a military or a militarised force. So what other comparisons might we start to make? to peaceful civil disobedience in India, led by Gandhi, whose record of peaceful operation was punctured by such violence as Amritsar. Well, it's just worth having that in mind. David Cameron recently saying, we must never forget what happened here and we must ensure that the United Kingdom stands up for the right of peaceful protest. Maybe some similarity, but of course the scale of death vastly different. How about demonstrators around the world who attempted to move public opinion over the Vietnam War and where inevitably as time passed, large groups of protesters did include some inclined to martyrdom, the people who burnt themselves alive or who used violence at demonstration and where, as in the Kent State University, as some of you will remember, reaction by the authorities brought death to the innocent. Well, possibly that's something closer for us to consider. Or is it, should it be the destruction of the Berlin Wall by people on both sides? But although a boundary was being torn down, a bit closer, I suppose, to dealing with a blockade, people on both sides wanted it. And although for a time the East German authorities arrested and prosecuted people, and I put in the printed paper an extract that you may find interesting for its parallel to the present circumstance, that probably is also some distance removed. But all of these circumstances may have something to tell us about how, how protesters were treated on land and how protesters, demonstrators, whatever these people were, should be treated. 
The police in Grosvenor Square at Vietnam protests or at the South African Embassy in Trafalgar Square at anti-apartheid demonstrations always attempted to maintain a peaceable nature for the demonstrations and used force only when necessary to maintain the peace. They got criticised and were sometimes no doubt improperly attacked. Their horses were famously attacked, as again some of us will remember. But whenever authorities use lethal force against protesters, as in Amritsar, Kent State, they tended to expose themselves not just to criticism, but often to forces of opinion sufficiently strong to become part of the reason for long-term policy change. It didn't always happen, but sometimes. The common sense, thinking around the subject. What legal instruments, if any, give us guidance as to what the passengers on the flotilla could expect from a law-abiding state. The United Nations 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights is of universal application, but is without legal force. But it does say that no one shall be subjected to arbitrary arrest or detention, and that everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression, and the right to freedom of peaceful assembly. Peaceful assembly, the right to peaceful assembly being what is, of course, protected by the police when they permit, allow and control in a lawful way uh, demonstrations on dry land. Well, the declaration is of no legal effect, but it gave rise to conventions that are of legal effect, and in particular the Convention on Civil and Political Rights, which Israel has signed up to, subject to one reservation. The International Court of Justice case about the wall built in Israel that divides community, a court that found that the construction of such a wall constituted breaches by Israel of various of its obligations under applicable international human law and human rights instruments, including the covenant of civil and political rights, found, amongst other things, the following. Uh, first of all, this particular case looked back to the nuclear weapons case uh, uh, of the same court, but an earlier decision. And it said, in that case, the protection of the international covenant of civil and political rights does not cease in times of war, except by operation of Article 4 of the covenant, whereby certain provisions may be derogated from in a time of national emergency. And it went on at paragraph 106 to say of the interaction of humanitarian law that deals with the conduct of armed forces in war and human rights law that are universally available. It says three possible situations arise. Some rights may be exclusively matters of international humanitarian law. Others may be exclusively matters of human rights law. Yet others may be matters of both these branches of international law. And we then, therefore, need to look at what um, was said about the uh, International Covenant itself, or identified about the International Covenant. And Article 2 says, each state party to the present covenant undertakes to respect and to ensure to all individuals within its territory and subject to its jurisdiction the rights recognised in the present covenant without distinction of any kind, such as race, colour, sex, language, and so on. 
Um, thus, we find ourselves in the position... Yes, the, the, the court would observe that, and this is what it said, um, that while the jurisdiction of states is primarily territorial, it may sometimes be exercised outside the national territory, considering the object and purpose of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, it would seem natural that, even when such is the case, states' parties to the Covenant should be bound to comply with its provisions. And this is an issue that's never been raised, uh, but is worthy of consideration, because you will understand that, uh, although there are powers to derogate, to withdraw from, or to make a reservation about, the application of part of this covenant to your particular state. Israel has only done that um, under Article 4 in respect of Section 9 or Article 9. And for that, it needs to prove that there was a public emergency which threatens the life of the nation and the existence of which is officially proclaimed. Well, all the other rights are not protected by that reservation and even that right, Article 9, let's see if I've got Article 9 up. No, I haven't. I must have missed it somewhere. Sorry, meant to put Article 9 up, but I'll tell you what they all say in summary. Article 9 of the Covenant says that everyone has the right to, to, to liberty and shan't be subject to arbitrary arrest or detention. That, that's Article 9, for which there's this reservation which would need a particular circumstance to be proved. Article 10 says that persons um, deprived of their liberty shall be treated with humanity and with respect. And Article 21 says the right of peaceful assembly shall be recognised and no restrictions can be placed on it. Think that through. All of these apply to people of good intention on the Marvi Mamara. Even if They'd gone beyond the mere business of trying to bring humanitarian aid to Gaza. Even if they were demonstrating, they have a right to peaceful assembly and they have a right to these protections. Only if, of course, Israel is exercising jurisdiction over them. But what else is it doing when on the high sea it uh, lands on their boats, controls them and arrests them? This is an arguable point. It hasn't been determined. But is that the right that protesters can reasonably expect when doing what these particular people did? Incidentally, the European Convention on Human Rights has, broadly speaking, the same provisions, not enforceable in respect of this particular event, but uh, probably customary international law binding in that way. Returning thus with consideration of the status of the people on this vessel, to the broadly non-controversial facts. We know about the 10 civilian passengers now dead, 50 seriously wounded, uh, many abused, um, and suffering maltreatment in the handcuffing, being kept handcuffed for a long time, not allowed to use the lavatories with the inevitable consequence, limited or no food and drink, kneeling on the deck, exposed to the sun with 13 passengers getting first-degree burns and matters of that sort, searched and terrorised by dogs, blindfolded, hoods over their heads. 
Sources for this all in the paper. The vessels were rerouted to Ashdod, where the fingerprints were taken, intimate body searches were conducted, and the passengers experienced intimidating and coercive behaviour from Israeli officers were denied access to legal or consular representative until their release some days later. And then we have the, the four formal investigations, which, as I've said, are each subject to criticism. In fact, there was an earlier one, and the earlier one was the military probe led by retired Israeli General Island, or Island, who acknowledged that mistakes in various decisions were made, including at relatively senior ranks, that ended up in the result we, the military, did not anticipate. And it was that report that led to the Turkle Commission, you remember the one with David Trimble as a non-voting observer, and that commission concluded on the information available that, um, including witness testimonies from Israeli officials, that the use of force against the flotilla was proportionate. It was okay. The fact-finding commission, to which I've already referred, presided over by Hudson Phillips, included a UK privy councillor who'd previously been chief prosecutor of the Sierra Leone Tribunal. This report, on the other hand, found that the blockade was unlawful, that this was collective punishment, and that there had been several violations and offences committed with clear evidence to support prosecutions of crimes under the Geneva Convention, and it concluded that the right to an effective remedy should be guaranteed to all the victims. That then led to the United... Perhaps that was an embarrassing report for the United Nations, coming from its Human Rights Council. In any event, it took some time to establish the United Nations' own um, Secretary General's report, the Palmer Report, and this found somewhere between the two. It found the blockade to be lawful, but that it found that Israel's decision to board the vessel with such substantial force was excessive and unreasonable, noting that non-violent options should have been used in the first instance and the operation should have reassessed its operations. Uh, there was also a report prepared for the Turkish government as well. In May 2013, lawyers for the government of the Union of Comoros, an island off Africa, but which was the flag state of the Mavi Mamara and a signatory to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, filed a referral to that court requesting the prosecutor to initiate an investigation into the flotilla incident. The referral focused on the interception of the Mavi Mamara, but a couple of other vessels in due course came within the scope of the court's possible concern. And the prosecutor announced the opening of a preliminary examination and uh, the case was assigned to what's called a pretrial chamber. Comoros submitted through its lawyers, and those lawyers were later, me and others, submitted that Israel had committed a number of war crimes on board the vessels, including killing, great suffering, physical injury, torture, inhuman treatment, outrages against personal dignity. Witness evidence was submitted, autopsy reports, video evidence. And we now need to think about timing. This happened in 2013. And all that was asked of the prosecutor, in accordance with the statute and the provisions of the court, 
was that she should say whether she would investigate. Nothing more. No conclusion implied. Efforts were made to get her to hurry up because there seemed to be some sluggishness in her response. And there's always the fear or the concern where Israel is mentioned as an object of possible investigation that influences may be brought to bear to slow things down. She did nothing. And then, in the summer of last year, Operation Protective Edge happened. 2,200 people killed. 500 of them children. Now, one thing that has to be considered is whether, had it been known within a year of that referral to the court, that the court was willing to consider, willing to investigate. Nothing more than that. Might things have been different? It doesn't take much to deter those who can be fearful of court process on both sides to change their ways. But no. It was not until 18 months after the initial application for an investigation and about three months after Operation Protective Edge that the prosecutor made her decision or announced it and it was to do nothing. Well, as a result of that, in November or after her decision, um, further efforts were taken to make her reconsider. But I should tell you this, that in her decision, she recognised that there was a reasonable basis to believe that war crimes had been committed, including willful killing, willfully causing serious bodily injury and the mistreatment of passengers, all of which was within the scope of the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction. But she decided that by their nature, their scale and manner of commission they weren't serious enough to compel the court to investigate. Hundreds of people at risk on the high sea. No one coming to protect you. Nine, ten people killed. She has investigated, or her office under the predecessor has investigated uh, incidents involving a smaller number of victims who died, peacekeepers, um, in the Sudan, for example, but not now. She further refused to make a finding on the legality of the blockade in Gaza um, without realising that if she wasn't going to make a decision about that, that itself was a reason why she should agree at least to investigate the case because she accepted that a finding one way or the other about the legality of the blockade would have affected a final decision about criminality. Well, Comoros responded with an application, as I've indicated, for review, submitting that she'd erred in her duty in a number of ways, and the pretrial chamber to which the case had been assigned in July of this year decided by a majority that the prosecutor had deviated from her duty by her reasoning 
not to investigate, which was flawed. And indeed, it's flawed in many ways, uh, as that majority decision makes clear. And in particular, where she argued rather surprisingly that the evidence was too difficult for her to know at this preliminary stage whether to investigate, that was a reason not to investigate. As was argued by the Comoros and on behalf of the victims who now had their own interest in this particular piece of litigation um, and can be represented in it, as was argued by them and by Comoros, come on now, <laughs> if you say you can't decide something and it's material to the overall outcome, then of course you've got to investigate. You can't say this is a reason not to investigate. But that was part of her reasoning, which was the pretrial chamber said flawed. Did she accept that and say, OK, I'll get on with it? Sadly not. She's appealed it. If she succeeds in her appeal, hundreds of innocent civilians will be left with little or no prospect of remedy so far as bringing criminal proceedings are concerned. The only other route, perhaps to criminal proceedings, there are two other routes. One, national jurisdictions, such as our own, will investigate cases uh, where there is universal jurisdiction for torture. If somebody who may be identifiable as committing torture comes into the jurisdiction, that's one thing that's going on. And the, the Law of the Sea Convention might have applied, but neither uh, Israel nor the Comoros are signed up to that, so that, that was a dead letter. So if she succeeds in her appeal, hundreds of innocent civilians will be left with little or no prospect of remedy. By appealing the decision, time passes, the victims and Comoros wait now for the appeal chamber's decision. If she wins, then the process will in fact continue. More applications, more referrals to the court, more work by lawyers in the business of persuading someone to investigate rather than engaged in the business of actually finding out or establishing what really happened. And of course the effect of this sort of litigation history on the belief that Israel is able through America to wield unwarranted influence on the court appears possible even if unjustified. There have been apologies by Israel, there's been or effective apologies by the Prime Minister, there's been an attempt to negotiate a settlement with Turkey, although I'm not quite sure how Turkey, which is a government, can uh, settle a case on behalf of a range of individuals. The figure of $20 million is said to have been offered. Following all that, in May of this year, there was another attempt to break the blockade by a small flotilla, passengers, uh, the flotilla were stopped, passengers were subject to harsh inspections, uh, tasered, beaten with clubs. No firearms were used, demonstrating that which is entirely clear, namely that firearms weren't necessary to stop a vessel in the first place. Not if you know, as was known, that the Mavi Mamara and all the vessels on that flotilla were unarmed because they'd all been searched on uh, entering the ship. Subject, of course, to the disputed issue about whether there were activists who entered separately and who knows with what. But no evidence, as I said, suggestive of any firearms. Um, with this unhappy history, two, year, two weeks ago, another case was instituted in another court. The family relations of the young man killed 
who had United States citizenship have brought an action in California. Uh, Ayod Barak, the former Prime Minister and Minister of Defence at the time of the events, has been served with papers and a court process there uh, will now start and it will be interesting to see if there's submission to the jurisdiction or whether there will be the maximum resistance by him and by governments to the process going ahead. As efforts are appropriately expended on that case, we might again consider whether it would have been preferable for the energy to have been expended on a proper exploration at the ICC by independent international judges of whether the attack on the board on, by those on board the vessel was lawful or not. And so, a couple of minutes of conclusion and then questions. Those engaged in seemingly unending conflicts around the world might consider the stance of bystanders like most of us, who may be appalled by what we see, may want to help, and may feel increasingly alarmed and threatened by a world coming daily more dangerous. Bystanders' interests in the historic rights and wrongs of any conflict wears thin, measured against the growing anguish they may feel for the victimhood, suffering of others, moderated only by concerns that they will have for themselves, as, I suppose, approaches to the recent refugee crises have shown. They, the bystanders, may want justifiably to see authoritative answers to questions of the legality of actions in conflict as a better way to a safer future if they can reduce or stop the killing of the innocent. That's not what the bystander necessarily sees or gets. What rights do people have to demonstrate on the high seas? Probably as many or more than people who protest on dry land. Probably at least as many of the, as those protesting in a secure capital city on some political issue. Perhaps more, given the danger of the sea as opposed to the danger of dry land. It might seem a strange or even an illogical thing to do, but hundreds of well-intentioned, unarmed people from around the world have said to have had as one reason for being on the vessels involved in this flotilla uh, and being exposed to IDF and Israeli Defence Force intervention the purpose of drawing attention to the plight of Gaza and the Gazan people. Given that the Mavia Mamara was 73 nautical miles off the Gaza coast when attacked, it might be appropriate to consider as a very rough analogy whether hundreds of demonstrators gathering on Hampstead Heath with a view to a demonstration a little later in Trafalgar Square um, could properly be arrested, handcraft taken away. Arguably not. Those in this audience who have journeyed with me over the last three years through consideration of many conflicts have shown a continuing concern for the victims of atrocities and by their very presence here in Gresham College's Barnards Inn Hall, their willingness to consider with open minds how difficult it is to find ways to alleviate the suffering caused by states that go to war. For them, and for many, the specific Gaza question, effectively asked by Hudson Phillips, to which I drew your attention early on, may be of particular practical importance. Should an independent agency, presumably the UN, arrange for aid voluntarily given in such large amounts to be transported to and distributed within Gaza in order to tap the manifest goodwill of the uninvolved but concerned citizens of the world? Because if that could have happened, then um, 
separation would have occurred of one function, political protesting, from humanitarian relief. I'm not aware of and don't believe there was any effort made by the UN to achieve that on behalf of the people of Gaza. And of course, the political function of demonstrators would remain, and there's no reason to believe that people independent but anguished over suffering they believe to be unjustified might not take again to the seas in numbers to mark their desire for change, and maybe not just off Gaza and in respect of the Gaza conflict. But for those who protest in such a way, much stands in the way of their humanitarian aid getting through or of their having much political effect or of changing the thinking of those whose thinking may need to open up or to change. What part can the law play? The fact that everything here is challenged, the four major inquiries not being respected, shows a need for an independent court to investigate with full cooperation of all parties and to bring some definitive conclusions. And the very fact of a proper legal investigation happening may, as I suggested when we considered the timing of the failure to answer by the prosecutor and the happening of protective edge and 2,200 deaths, the mere fact of a proper legal investigation happening may itself have beneficial effect. Legal process and even the beginning of activity towards a proper legal process may have effects on parties in conflict as is and has been revealed in other conflicts. The overall legal process may not cure the conflict but may provide something of a blanket that dampens violence and allows other beneficial changes to come. Legal process may be part of a bridge between parties that will ultimately have to be made politically, but that can be started or furthered once it is known that the supporting pillar of an accurate legal determination is being created. With such a process, a legal process in place, and if physical aid can get through to those in need, then the non-involved but concerned bystander may not feel the need put her or his legal rights to the test or to put innocent life at any risk on the high seas. Questions? For all information, please go to gresham.ac.uk.